welcome to Black Bolt. Um, today's guest is, I, I don't know how else to put it, he's a legendary journalist in Canada. I think he was four decades at the CBC. He's also an author, and I, I, I would love to pick his brain a little bit about uh, a bunch of things, but one of the things is, is going to be what's going on today in both journalism and in the world of protesting in Ottawa, because I think it's, uh, it's current and it's worthwhile uh, to talk about that kind of stuff. So, um, Terry, welcome to the show. Terry Molesky, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing fine. Um, before we, I, I want to talk about a bunch of stuff, but the, because it's current, can I just get your take on what you think led to the convoy in Ottawa this week? What do you think it's about? Um, and is it fair to paint them all? I know the answer to this, I think, with the same sort of negative brush. Like, what, what's happening in Ottawa in the last couple of days? Well, let's leave the, the, uh, the brush painting on one side for the moment. I think what's happening more broadly is um, a fun envy. That is to say that a lot of people who uh, otherwise didn't have much of an outlet were shunned by the conventional political parties uh, and uh, have generally been considered to be uh, beyond the pale uh, in, the, in, in the prevailing consensus, broad consensus of Canadian politics, have noticed that south of the border, uh, it's, that's all changed. And the people that previously uh, we didn't know existed uh, and existed uh, in their um, isolated little echo chambers uh, in the backwaters of the internet, uh, not in mainstream politics, uh, have figured out a way to emerge and to coalesce uh, and to unite with each other and form their uh, little groups uh, under the banner of uh, Trump. And here in Canada, like-minded people who felt uh, left out, uh, didn't agree with the political consensus, uh, thought that uh, white people were being overwhelmed by an influx of uh, people of color uh, and didn't like the uh, elite consensus and woke politics of uh, uh, the Internet age. Uh, they found that uh, they didn't like look, tuning into Tucker Carlson on Fox News and not being able to, to have a Canadian Tucker Carlson. Why don't we have Fox News? Why don't we have a Trump? Uh, so they started to climb into their trucks and uh, drive to Ottawa and discover that there were indeed uh, other like-minded people and that if they all got together, they might at least uh, get on TV uh, and uh, actually get interviewed by Tucker Carlson as Mr. What's-his-name-Dicta uh, was interviewed a couple of nights ago on uh, Tucker Carlson saying, how horrifying it was to him to discover that when he drove across the border, uh, that um, uh, the border guard uh, already knew uh, his details uh, and even his uh, vaccine status, knew who he was, had his phone number, because uh, his phone number had popped up on the border guard screen. And how horrifying this was. You'd think this guy never had license plates on his truck before. <laughs> this is a huge revelation. Oh, my God. They know who you are. Yeah, well, that's been true for about 100 years. Um, and and the, the only difference is one of degrees. The technology has improved. So instead of just reading a license plate and seeing who, who owns the truck and, and so forth, now they know your vaccine status. And the suggestion here in, the, in, in this gentleman's interview with Tucker Carlson was that this was this is A, a new revelation, B, uh, horrifying, because, you know, why should the border guard know uh, your vaccine status, as though he should not know. And we should not know if somebody coming into the country uh, might put uh, people at risk or be at risk themselves for hospitalization. Uh, we can talk more about that if you like, but that, that's my general answer. I think fun envy, the fun of getting on TV ha and saying, damn, hang Trudeau, whatever you want to say, uh, and to urinate on the war memorial, that this uh, makes us relevant, uh, gives us a meaningful voice in national politics where we felt resentful and uh, left out before. Now, even when I hear you say that, you, you started off, uh, and it could have been sarcasm I was hearing, but you almost sort of uh, sounded like a person who kind of understood um, that uh, there were a, that there's a swath of people that felt like they weren't being listened to. I'm, I'll just give you a quick example. Um, when Trump was first running, 
I remember a CNN reporter going to uh, one of the uh, middle America states and talking to them about, you know, about what they see in Trump. And um, one of the answers that really struck me was, well, whenever we were talking about how um, NAFTA took away our jobs and we've been trying to climb out of economic peril ever since, the other side wants to tell us about pronouns. And they sort of felt like the, the prioritization of issues for them wasn't really taken into account. Like it was, it, was, it was about the woke stuff that you were talking about. So where is the delineation line between having a point when, you're, uh, when, when you feel like your issues have been ignored and then how you go about exercising that point in real, in real life? Well, like uh, Thurgood Marshall or, or whoever it was on the U.S. Supreme Court said, I, I, I can't really define obscenity, but I know it when I see it. I would answer you by saying that I know when you're crossing the line, however you de define the line that you're asking about. Uh, what I mean is that uh, when you issue a, 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 as an organization, as the Freedom Convoy, a memorandum of, uh, of understanding, whatever they call it, uh, which writ reads like it was written by a couple of uh, anxious 14-year-olds um, uh, saying that we're going to go to Ottawa and we're going to take over the government uh, by magic. Uh, and uh, in concert with uh, the governor general and the unelected Senate, we're going to rescind all of the vaccine mandates and mask mandates and uh, reinstate and compensate anyone who's been punished for violating these mandates and uh, this is all going to uh, miraculously happen like that. that you, then you've crossed the line into fantasy. Uh, you, you're making a fool of yourself. You don't understand how government or the, or the country works at all. You are completely at sea. You don't know what you're talking about. And that is, uh, I, I certainly did preface what my previous answer by saying that these people felt left out by uh, conventional politics. Uh, and, and I don't lack sympathy for that. We all, to some degree, uh, uh, feel that the, the, the broader consensus uh, disrespects us in some way. Uh, you know, I think there's too much hockey and not enough tennis because I prefer watching tennis. Well, you know, I feel left out. You know, I want to write to TSN and uh, and say, you know, why don't you show more Rafael Nadal and less of these other people on, uh, who are playing sports that, that don't interest me? Well, uh, okay, fine. Uh, if they do feel left out, there are legitimate political channels through which they can express themselves. And where you cross the line, in my view, is where you abandon hope in those legitimate channels just because they're not interested in you. Uh, and you feel all hurt, uh, and you want to whine about it, uh, that's crossing the line. When, when, when you spurn democratic procedures, like, you know, elections, you know, stuff like that, I mean, if they have a legitimate point to make, they can stand for election. And if they don't get elected, maybe that's because people don't want them to represent them. Yeah, I mean... There was a there was a time when Stephen Harper was in power where I think he was reviled by one half of the country, but never enough to march on Ottawa and demand that he be taken out um, by the sergeant at arms and, and and put on a guillotine platform like that, that you know and and it felt like you know I'm not I'm a nonpartisan I didn't like Harper I don't really like Trudeau. Um, I, I don't have like a dog in the hunt, uh, like I think a lot of voters feel like they do. I sort of see us as a leaderless country a little bit, like we don't, our best and brightest are not leading the way in any of the parties. But I've never seen such a visceral hatred reaction to a prime minister in my lifetime. And I, I, I'm wondering if this is just because I'm, I'm uh, ignorant to history or, or if this is something new. Well, I, I think it did exist with Trudeau's father. I think there was. I covered the senior Trudeau, and there certainly was uh, visceral opposition in the West. I mean, remember the National Energy Program? You know, what do you think they were saying in Alberta then? The same thing as they're saying now, broadly speaking, except 
that they didn't get on TV. They didn't have their own YouTube channels. They didn't have the Internet. They have now been enabled. Uh, and uh, they can, everyone can get on TV. Everyone can say whatever the hell they like. Uh, and uh, that was not, it was simply, there was no outlet uh, for those who went after the elder Trudeau as they now go after the younger one. Yeah. Um, okay, let's shift gears a little bit because um, <clears throat> one of the reasons why I ha wanted to have you on is because I, I really enjoyed you as a journalist. I enjoyed listening to you um, talk about issues because you did it in a way that, didn't make me like I could never guess if you were left or right or conservative like and that's what I really liked about you and I think we needed more people like that um, and then I, I started preparing for this interview by looking at when you left the CBC and there was just a couple of people that that had questions about and, and a couple people asked me to ask you this <clears throat> if you were if you left the CBC on your own accord or if there was a little bit of a nudge and if you're even allowed to talk about that I'm, I'm allowed. Uh, of course, I can say whatever the hell I like about it. Great. And uh, I left because I was getting old. I retired. I mean, uh, I, you know, I was, I was getting puffed walking up Parliament Hill. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, I, I did work there for 40 years. Isn't that enough? I worked in 52 or 53 countries. I can't remember now. The ones I remember, uh, the ones I actually filed stories from, uh, isn't that enough? I mean, I, I, I wanted to, a break. I wanted to retire. That's like most people. There's no mystery. Okay. Well, like I said, um, you know, my preface was, was just to let you know that I enjoyed watching you a lot. And, um, and the CBC, since you've left, um, see, I, I don't have, a, a, an, a, again, another broad brush opinion about the CBC. But if you saw the Tara Henley situation a few weeks ago, was that something that you had to deal with, with you when you were there? Like, could you see some of the politics getting into the newsroom and sort of impacting the way that uh, objectivity was being treated? Yes, and we resisted it. Uh, but it was nothing like it is now, according to her account, although uh, I have my doubts about her account. Um, I'd never heard of a, you know, like she was written up, you know, veteran CBC journalist denounces the CBC woke politics. Well, uh, she was such a veteran that I never heard of her. Uh, and, you know, I did follow the CBC's activities. And I, I gather she was only there since 2013. So she was only there for a very brief time when I worked there. Um, it's not to denigrate her in any ways, just to, to cast doubt upon the reporting that she was some towering figure in the pantheon of CBC stars. Just nobody ever heard of her. Um, so um, I, I'm not even sure she was on staff at any time, but, but never mind all of that. Uh, I'm sure she gave an honest account of the obstacles that she felt she faced. And I'm sure it's true uh, that woke politics uh, is, is a greater problem at the CBC now than it was in my day. I retired in 2016. I'm out of date. I'm washed up. I'm a has-been. And, uh, <laughs> and so you know, don't consider me an authority on the CBC today. But having said all of that, yes, uh, there was, even during my time, uh, occasional um, disagreements uh, about uh, politics. And, uh, you know, if you went after somebody, as I sometimes did, uh, aggressively, there would be pushback saying, well, you know, some people might not like it, you know, you'll, 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 you'll get, uh, you'll piss off the left or you'll piss off the right. Uh, and there would be complaints uh, more about w whether you were antagonistic or you were riling some interest group uh, and, you know, you needed to bring in some balance and rile the opposite side equally, uh, then it would be okay. There was that kind of thing. It happens in every newsroom, all, as you well know, all the time. Uh, yeah. the, 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 there's push and pull. But I did not, during my time, encounter an atmosphere where you know, people were fired and silenced for violating uh, uh, woke rules or anything like that. It just it wasn't that account was not familiar to me. And, and I did work in CBC newsrooms, yeah, for 40 years. So you think I, I would have noticed. Yeah, I, re I remember um, the right being upset with Neil McDonald because he described Hamas militants as militants instead of terrorists. Like, I remember stuff like that, but I don't, I, I don't recall 10 years ago 
uh, woke culture permeating so much that people would write op-eds about it and at, when they were walking out the door. Like, I don't recall that kind of ideology being present. Yeah, no, I, and, and, and nor do I. I mean, it was, it, it was news to me recently to hear that, uh, you know, a couple of CBC sent a couple of reporters to Gaza uh, during the last uh, Israeli incursion into uh, Gaza, uh, during the last small war there, and, and they discovered that they were chosen on the basis of, the, of their ethnic uh, identity. We, we couldn't send two white people. We had to have one white and one brown. Uh, and you know, in, in my time, I don't think people were worried about that kind of thing. And now they are. Uh, uh, I'm just reciting an anecdote that I heard. I have no firsthand information about that. Uh, but but I, I suspect that it's true. Uh, and uh, so I think that, yeah, this, the woke problem has advanced, certainly, since my time. Yeah. Um, but since you've retired, um, and, and <clears throat> we, I think we, we like spent, uh, sent an email back and forth, maybe something like that, like two years ago when Jagmeet Singh got in hot water um, for not denouncing the Air India bomber um, and for not speaking transparently about the support that the Air India bomber may or may not have inside communities that he seeks support from. Um, <clears throat> and you wrote a book, and the book is called Blood for Blood, 50 Years of the Global Khalistan Project. I am going to go out on a limb and say that most of the people that will listen to this uh, have no idea what that is. Um, I don't think it got a, enough traction in Canada for people to, um, you know, form an opinion about it either way, especially since the bombing was so long ago. And then a lot of this other stuff is, is fairly new, such as your book. Can you give us uh, as best you can a sort of encapsulated um idea of the Khalistan extremist problem and how that uh, leaked over into Canada through the Air India bombing and then through political situations afterwards? Well, I, I, I'll try to be short. If, if, if I'm too short, you'll, you'll, you'll ask me the more questions. So uh, essentially, um, this is a problem which many Canadians, you're quite right, uh, don't know much about, even though uh, by far the worst terrorist incident to have occurred anywhere on the globe um, because of the Khalistan struggle for independence, uh, the independence of the Sikh nation, as they called it, in uh, northwestern India. The, by far the worst terrorist attack was a Canadian affair in which Canadian citizens, Sikhs from Punjab, immigrants from, from Punjab, put bombs on two planes departing Vancouver Airport, one going west around the world, the other going east. And the westbound bomb blew up in, uh, in Tokyo at the Narita Airport and killed a couple of baggage handlers. It went off an hour early. Uh, and the other bomb blew up Air India Flight 182, of course, in June of 1985 over the coast of Ireland, uh, killing 329 innocent uh, passengers and crew. And uh, because of that, uh, and because of the prevalence of Khalistani independences, separatist politics, if you will, uh, in Canada, on the part of immigrants who had left Punjab uh, in a hurry, in some cases, because they were wanted uh, by the Indian police, uh, the uh, Canada became the kind of world headquarters for the Sikh separatist movement. Uh, and to some degree, it still is. The UK is still pretty strong. There are many separatists in the United States and Germany. The Sikh diaspora is uh, large and, and active all over the world. Uh, and and the vast majority of them, I would say more than 90%, um, are loyal both to uh, India, their native land, uh, and to their adopted countries, like any other immigrant community. They're mainly concerned with uh, getting a job, getting the kids to school on time, same as the rest of us. And they've done very well uh, and had a, a particularly a remarkably low in, uh, incidence of crime and the like. However, there is a very small minority, and I emphasize that it's extremely small minority, uh, which still pursues separatist politics, um, despite the fact that in their home state of Punjab in India, uh, it's a dead issue. 
so much so that at the last elections in Punjab, for example, and this is a significant fact, I think, that many people also don't know about. Uh, in, in Canada, people tend to think that, you know, the Sikhs as a community are separatists. Uh, in fact, it, if you can judge by, by actual voting figures, in the last Punjab election, separatists were allowed to run. They have been for years, but their vote has been declining for 30 years, for a generation, in fact. So much so that at the last 2017 elections in Punjab, the separatist party, the only separatist party, got 0.3% uh, of the vote, a small fraction of 1%. In fact, none of the above, which is a category in the elections reported by the Election Commission in India, uh, none of the above got twice as many votes as the separatists did. That is a fair measure of the support for separatist politics in Punjab. Uh, nevertheless, the separatists in Canada try to persuade everyone that we speak for the entire Sikh community and that if you disrespect separatist politics in Canada, that's an attack on all Sikhs. And that's a lie. It simply isn't true. It's like saying that if I condemn drunk driving, that I shouldn't say that because that's an offense to all drivers. Or that if I condemn white supremacists, that's an offense to all white people. So I can't say anything bad about Nazis. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous. It's logically absurd. And so is much of the, of the separatist uh, project. Because as I say, uh, Punjab has been very successful among uh, the Indian states. It used to be the breadbasket of India. Uh, now it isn't, uh, but um, the fact of the matter is that millions and millions of Sikhs in Punjab like living there and want to stay inside India. So these politics have to some degree effect infected uh, Canadian politics to the point where the mastermind, and this is the final point I make, mm -hmm. uh, sorry to go on so long. No, it's okay. To the point, to the point where the mastermind of the Air India bombing, a fanatical terrorist who was Canada's worst mass murderer in history, who butchered 331 completely innocent civilians who had nothing to do with the separatist project. He is today worshipped and adored and revered and portrayed with a big life-size martyr poster on the outside of an important Gurdwara, the temple in Surrey, British Columbia, as a martyr and a hero of the Sikh nation and a model for Sikh youth. This is so bizarre, so belligerent, so insane that such a person should be held up as a heroic figure that I don't really need to say more to explain how toxic this element of our politics is. And it has become an element of our politics in Canada because of their determination and their political influence. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Um, what is the reason? Is it just uh, a desire to be relevant that they would still kind of hold these extremist political views, like the peop the leaders of these extremists views in Canada, when in Punjab and in, <clears throat> you know, it it's not as serious as 
as it once was? Like, are they just seeking relevance for the sake of it? Are they trying to maintain leadership? Is it fundraising? What is it exactly? Well, some of it may have to do uh, with control of the Gurdwaras and the revenues that they obtain. Uh, so the, the, there's definitely money involved. Uh, if you're in charge of the, of the temple and you preach Khalistan independence politics, uh, and those who disagree with you are threatened, disregarded, silenced, uh, and pushed to the margins, go to some other temple, uh, then, uh, then yes, that's, um, that gives you power within the community to police the community and to dragoon people to adopt uh, your point of view. Uh, so there's that, and also uh, there is there. Uh, I won't say it's insincere, a genuine desire to see an independent state for the Sikhs, so that the Sikhs have their sovereignty. The Kurds want to start. There are separatist movements all over the world, including in Canada, and there's nothing wrong with that. Let them campaign openly. I say, let them have a legal vote if they want on an independent state, but they pursue a kind of politics uh, which I believe is quite toxic, where uh, people who disagree are threatened. And there is a nasty history in Canada of uh, peaceful, moderate Sikhs who disagree with violence and the use of violence, um, which as I said, is has been extreme uh, in the Khalistani community uh, in the world and in Canada in particular because of the Air India bombing, uh, those who disagree get beaten up. Uh, I mean, the, it, it doesn't happen nowadays where they, you know, they, they basically uh, harass you on Twitter and uh, file lawsuits against you instead of sending men with baseball bats. But it's not so long ago that they did send men with baseball bats to nearly kill, for example, Balraj Diol in Brampton, Ontario. Bujol de Sange in British Columbia uh, was nearly killed by a guy with an iron bar who wanted him to stop saying that there shouldn't be violence, that the Sikhs should not employ violence. So there are a variety of reasons, uh, the desire for independence, the desire for control of the temples, and much in between, why they're, they're still pursuing this dream 30 years after it died out in India because of the violence. Which, which, which appalled most Sikhs, just the same as most people. Yeah. Um, and the bomber, was it the bomber himself that was convicted for perjury? Uh, no, that was the bomb maker. Okay. Uh, that was, the, the, this the, gentleman, the, I mean, He was certainly one of the bombers. That's Inajit Singhriyat. Yeah, you have him yep. on your screen. Okay. Uh, that's the guy who made the bombs. And he was convicted three times. He spent most of the last 30 years in prison. He's out now, and he was convicted three times, once for the bomb, which I mentioned that blew up in Tokyo, once for the Air India bomb, and once for perjury at the trial uh, of uh, two other accused uh, who he refused to incriminate. Uh, he, he, he probably would have been killed if he did incriminate them, um, and, and, and that happened. I mean, there were witnesses at the Air India trial, one in particular, Tara Singh Heer, who was indeed murdered before he could testify. Others got the message, took the stand and said, oh, I don't remember anything. Having told the police that, well, you know, I mean, here's my story. I'm, I certainly, my story is true. I know who put the bomb on the plane, but I'm not going to say it in court because my two children will be killed. And the trial, sad to say, incentivized the intimidation of witnesses by uh, throwing that test that that evidence out because well she told an intelligence officer she signed statements saying that he recorded his her story uh accurately but she didn't repeat it on the witness stand because she's afraid of getting killed therefore we're going to throw the evidence out never mind the signed statements never mind what she told the intelligence officer never mind that it was substantiated by other evidence we, the evidence was thrown out. So Canada um, did a terrible job 
obviously of preventing the bombing when they had the suspects under surveillance for months before it happened and wiretapped them for months before it happened, followed them to a test bombing, heard the explosion, ducked behind a tree, oh my God, what's happening? And still didn't figure out what was happening in the face of warnings that, look, Air India was getting threats all the time. We need to have more security on the baggage. They didn't do anything about it. They didn't believe the tips that they got. So there was that. And then Canada failed again after the bombing in, in the investigation, failing to bring the, the suspects to justice and to give the families of the victims some measure of justice and uh, failed again at the trial when it eventually happened to convict. So only Riyadh, you're right, was only Riyadh, the bomb maker, was ever convicted. So uh, the other guy's name was Talwinder Singh Parmar? Talwinder, is that his name? Talwinder Parmar, the mastermind of the bombing, who organized the plot, conceived the idea, and uh, ordered the bombs, uh, fled the country in 1988. Uh, he occupied himself as a gun runner in Pakistan, running guns into Punjab. He was caught in Punjab by police patrols. He was ratted out by an informer. And he died in the company of a couple of other uh, Sikh terrorists, Khalistani terrorists, and significantly two ISI agents from Pakistan. Interesting. Um, that was a pre-9-11 world. Um, do you think yeah. that the trial would have been a lot different if it if it happened? I know it's a kind of ridiculous hypothetical to ask, but you know, like our world changed a lot when that uh, when nine eleven took place, and I think that um, it feels like there would have been a lot higher chance of of convicting those who were responsible if if it took place after nine eleven. Is that fair? Is that ridiculous hypothetical? Or well, the trial did. The yeah. trial, the, the trial, uh, the verdict came down in 2005. Uh, yeah. So that was only what, 17 years ago. So, so the, the, um, but, but you're right that it, it was a different world in the 80s when the bomb was placed. I mean, can you imagine today bags being loaded onto your plane with no pass when the passenger didn't board the flight? There's no, no passenger <laughs> attached to their bag. I mean, it's inconceivable now. Uh, of course, if the, if the passenger doesn't get on the plane, they say, you know, sorry, we'll be late taking off because we've got to take some bags off. <laughs> uh, but at the time, people didn't think about that. Um, I read somewhere, it was a long time ago, so I don't recall if you wrote it or somebody else, that the one that went off in Tokyo, the reason why it went off early is because they got the time change incorrect. Is that well? Yeah, yeah. The, the, there is a. It, it's pure speculation, of course, but uh, it happens that Japan doesn't use daylight savings time. So, if you were trying to count, if you were sitting uh, uh, on a Vancouver Island as Rayat was, with his homemade bombs stuffed in suitcases, the Sanyo tuner and a can of liquid fire to act as an accelerant and a bundle of dynamite sticks uh, from a logging camp uh, wrapped in tape. Uh, he was a bit of an amateur is what I'm, is my point. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then you, uh, I'm sorry, I, 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 I lost my train. What was your question again? Uh, just about, uh, you said he was an amateur, just about the yeah. time difference in, uh, in uh, Tokyo. Yeah. If yeah. you're sitting there, then you might not realize that when you're setting the timer that Japan wasn't on daylight savings time. And that might explain the one the, the, the bomb went off on the ground uh, rather than an hour later after right. the target Air India plane took off. The idea was to have two planes on opposite sides of the globe blow up nearly simultaneously. And it would have been a spectacular demonstration of the power of the Sikh separatist movement. And uh, they were reported the bombers were reported to have said at the time, well, you know, it's too bad we didn't kill more because then they would have got the message. During your time working on this story, because it's a, it, it, it's, you're like one of the few people that have actually like went on a deep dive on this story. I mean, you wrote a book about it, but I mean, the, the idea that, um, 
that they can then that, that that certain temples in Ontario and BC, from what I can recall, put up posters as if this man was a martyr. Did you, when you were working on this story, or anyone that you know, any other journalists, ask people who supported the idea that his face is on the wall why they supported that idea after he did what he did, or is it that they just don't believe that he did it? Um, there are various answers to that. The, the, the short one is uh, yes. Uh, I did speak to people uh, who espoused the uh, nobility uh, and holiness of uh, Tovinda Pama. I spoke to the president of the temple uh, at the time that uh, put up the posters, the martyr posters, honoring Pama as a great man and a, a great symbol, an inspiration to the Khalistan movement. And he said, uh, he's a great man. I love him. Uh, and he also said, uh, but, but he never guilty. The, the, which opens the door. I spoke to others who said, well, he's a martyr of the Sikh nation. And I put it to this temple spokesman. Well, uh, and you can see this documentary online. I'll mention it. Um, uh, I said, well, he was, he was the mastermind of the Air India bombing. Why do you think he's, he's a great martyr of the Sikh nation? Uh, he, 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 he butchered 300 completely innocent civilians. Uh, and he said, well, he said he did it, but that doesn't prove that he did it. <laughs> so even I mean, confession. This, this, you know, in other words, it's babbling nonsense. We know he did it because you know, there were three trials. There was a four-year judicial inquiry. There is a mountain of evidence. I have gigabytes of data on my hard drive about how, when, and with whom he did it. We have all the evidence. Why was he ordering bombs? What were they for? Why were those the bombs that actually blew up? We know about the green tape and the Sanyo tuna. We have all the detail. We, they even wiretapped in ordering the booking of the tickets. Yeah. And the translator's notes of that wiretap survive. Um, so it, it, we do make attempts to try to find out what are these people thinking. But basically, they tell us what they're thinking unasked on Twitter uh, and elsewhere uh, by, uh, by publishing it. For example, one of these sort of ideologists, so-called, of the Khalistan movement today, the British guy, uh, 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 tweeted uh, at, at one point, well, the civilians were unintended. The, the civilian casualties were unintended. <laughs> during a time of war. And the ex-Baba Khalsa members, that is the terrorist group which planted the bombs, uh, they say that the bombs were timed to explode on the ground. Like, like no plane was ever late. Yeah. You know, you, 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 uh, like, you know I mean... That means they, they would call the, the baggage handlers in Tokyo the success, the success of that bomb because it, it blew up on the ground, right? Yeah, so like that, how do, how do we get Khalistan because you killed a couple of Japanese baggage handlers, please? Yeah, because you succeeded in having it go. I mean, obviously, uh, obviously, the people who checked in the bombs, they didn't take they didn't board the aircraft, did they? So, so they, they knew that when they put the bombs on the plane, the passengers might very well die. In fact, that was the idea. Did Jagmeet Singh finally come to the right place on this issue or has he did he sort of oh, let well, it he got go halfway the... there they give him credit so uh, you were right that this did become an issue when he when he won the leadership uh, he happened to come on power and politics on cbc i happened to be hosting so i asked him well you know you you've been a lifelong activist on Sikh causes and Sikh grievances against india uh and um, you know you identify with, with, with these people and what, what do you say about these martyr posters of the worst mass murderer in Canadian history? You, you know, are you, are you going to say that's okay? And he ducked the question. Then he ducked it again. He ducked it five times. Mm -hmm. I tried five times to get him to say it. And uh, he just wouldn't go there. He just wouldn't go there. He would not condemn the worst mass murderer in Canadian history. It's such a bizarre thing. And as you recall, it became a an issue like what is he doing here you know? because and it doesn't feel so like Jugmeet is the type of person to tacitly endorse extremism but the calculation seemed to be 
I don't want to piss off moderate supporters who might have a sympathetic ear for extremists. That's what it felt like. like well, he, he, he must have known, having spent his entire life in Sikh activism and politics, uh, his entire career, he must have known that the great majority of Sikhs want no part of the separatist project and disagree with it, in fact. Uh, 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 and, and in many cases, passionately, they disagree with it. But he did, to answer your earlier question, he did eventually come around at least halfway. Five months after that interview, he agreed on camera that, yes, he now accepted that Pama was indeed the author of the Air India bombing, and he accepts that, and that the, the question that we had asked him uh, was a perfectly fair question. What was the halfway uh, so he, then? What, what, well, what, the halfway what, what was that he didn't actually say the other half, which was, and I condemn those who portray Palmer as a great right. hero of the Sikh people. He merely said that he accepted the findings of the trials and the judicial inquiry that Palmer was into. Previously, his excuse had been, well, I don't know if he did it. Yeah which, of course, is, is, is utter baloney. I mean, you really have a lot of questions to ask. You know, th those who to this day still say, they still broadcast this nonsense about how well he wasn't convicted. Yeah, well, that's because he's dead. I mean, Osama bin Laden was never convicted. Hitler was never convicted. I mean, every suicide bomber ever was never convicted because they're dead. That's why he wasn't on trial. That doesn't mean that the evidence doesn't exist. Um, did you, uh, do you have a, uh, an opinion now on the impending, um, extradition of Julian Assange to Canada or sorry, to the United States? Um, I'm not, I, let me, let me, let me, let me, can I prove Sorry to cut you off. I yeah, want to preface this first because, um, the, the Snowden stuff, um, and the Assange stuff to me, it's sort of the fruit of the same tree. And I think both those stories are super important. And, and I just, I've never heard you talk about your side of the story of the rumor um, that I think Jesse Brown started about you refusing to work with Glenn Greenwald. And that's why the CBC didn't report on that, uh, uh, on the Snowden revelations. I don't know. I, I have no idea what's true and what isn't true. So I thought I would just ask you and get your, your side of that. Well, it's, no, it's a perfectly fair question. Uh, and Jesse kind of messed it, made a hash of it. He didn't really get what he was talking about. Um, uh, not for the first time or for the last. Uh, I mean, no, you know, he seems, seems like a well-intentioned guy, but uh, he, he just, he was completely at sea on this topic. Uh, in the first place, it's uh, completely false that the CBC didn't report on it. Uh, the CBC did report on it. Uh, and report on several of the Snowden, Greenwald uh, stories about uh, mass surveillance. I think what he said was that initially they sat on it. And the reason that he said was because you didn't want to work with Glenn Greenwald, which to me doesn't make any sense because the CBC would be like, okay, I'll, we'll just give it to Neil <laughs> or something, wouldn't they? No, uh, uh, what, what, what happened was we're talking actually about one specific aspect of the story. Okay. Um, I, I, I certainly thought that the Snowden revelations were of importance and significance. It exposed... Uh, a mass surveillance scheme about which the United States government uh, had systematically lied for many years. Uh, so fine, uh, I've got no problem with that. There was a specific aspect. That what, what, what happened was that Snowden and Greenwald strategized um, to release bits and pieces relevant to different countries to chosen journalists as partners with Greenwald so that he could massage and handle the treatment of the story as it affected Chile, the UK, Canada, and make sure that journalists who were, would be listened to were given these handout stories with Greenwald's spin on it. Hmm. However, that wasn't always accurate. And that was the problem. The particular issue was uh, an allegation that uh, Canada's Foreign Intelligence Service, 
had uh, been looking at downloads internationally to see who was downloading, for example, this is an actual example, I'm quoting, uh, a manual describing how to build a gas bomb. Hmm. In other words, Canada's Foreign Intelligence Agency wanted to know who was downloading manuals on how to, how to make bombs, because that might be interesting to know. Who was, who was downloading that? Oh, looks like it's a Canadian. Maybe we should check this guy out. Now, um, for two things that need to be said about that is first, it's entirely legal. There's nothing legal. That is what we have a foreign, foreign intelligence service for. That, that is what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to gather foreign intelligence. And they did. And we should be happy that they are investigating people who are trying to figure out how to build bombs. We just talked about Air India. Mm -hmm. I'd rather Rayat, Rayat made a hash of it. So the second thing to be said about this is that not only is it entirely legal, uh, but it's highly recommended that we should have uh, intelligence officers investigating people who are trying to build bombs. So I said to Greenwald, well, I'm sorry, but you want me to report this as though it's a scandal. Watch the scandal. Watch the illegality. Why, why is this a scandal? I said, well, you know, because uh, he, he represented this as a violation of uh, privacy, a very, very invasive violation of privacy. Well, um, the police can watch the red light and they can watch a thousand cars go through the red light and they only pursue the guy who runs the red light. The ones who stop, they don't pursue. So they can attempt to unmask the person who ran the red light by checking the license plate and find out who owns that car and send them a ticket. Is that a violation of their privacy? Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. What's the I mean, analogy? A, 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 that, every it, arrest is a violation of privacy. <laughs> if you commit a crime and the police come and get you, it's a violation of your privacy. But it's not a problem for me. The piece that's missing from the analogy, and I don't disagree with you necessarily, I just don't know what this missing piece is, is how did they come up with the information that people were downloading and was the way that they did that legal? Uh, yes, it was. It, it was legal. Uh, and um, th they are able to look at uh, the, uh, the metadata in global servers, which are offering free downloads of manuals like how to build a, a gas bomb. Uh, okay. th there was there was never any identified illegality in those investigations. Most of us ha don't have the, the means, uh, you need a professional agency, a government agency, to handle that much data. Because we're mm -hmm. talking about masses and masses of meta metadata, which uh, it, it's meaningless to most of us, unless you have professionals looking at it, looking for particular markers, looking at particular files available for download. Uh, we can all find those if we go looking hard enough. You can find them on the, on the dark web. So now that we're where we are now, and, and thank you for that, by the way. I, Jesse's bad at telling the other side of the story. <laughs> so I just wanted to clear that up because I don't feel like any journalist worth their salt would do what he's accusing, what he accused you of doing. So that's a good explanation. Thank you. Um, now that we're in 2022, uh, one of the interesting things I, I, I think of when I hear um, Snowden's name or Assange's name is 
when they when those stories first broke, the left really liked them and the right really hated them. And now it seems like that has flipped. And has, is that just a, a symptom of polarization and you're not going to like the person that's in charge, so you're going to just go against everything they believe in? Do you even know what the answer is? Like, why is it that Assange was a darling, and Snowden too, were darlings of the left when they came out? And I think rightfully so, because I thought what they did was important. I don't care that Julian Assange seems like a horrible douchebag. I think that he did good work, and I don't care what he's like as a person. Um, why is it that the right have now adopted both of them? Like, why, why um, is that? Well, I, I think... Um... The, the flip that you, decide, the, the, the you describe is real, I would take a step back. Why do, the, there is a common explanation for why both take their turn at being outraged. It's naivete. Both sides have been very naive. In my view, Glenn Greenwald and his colleagues uh, and, and Jesse Brown were extremely naive in thinking well, this is what spies do. This is why we pay them to find out who's downloading manuals to build the bomb. And if the left is outraged about that 10 years ago, and now it's the right because that doesn't like government tyranny and dictatorship and looking at our private lives, they both suffer from the same malady. They're naive. This is the real world. This is what, you know, do, do they or do they not want police to investigate people who are planning to build and plant bombs and to kill people? Well, if you put the question that way, yeah, I want them to do a really good job. We started, I think, talking about the Freedom Convoy. I think this is relevant to the question that you're asking. And this gentleman, uh, Mr. Dichter, I think his name is, uh, went on Tucker Carlson to say how horrified he was by the concept of vaccine passports, because uh, this gave the government the power to know uh, whether or not he is vaccinated. And this information could be passed to the border guard and the border guard could refuse you entry if you're not vaccinated. They know your secrets. Well, Generally speaking, I think we might agree, you correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's the way we want it. We want the border guard to know if this new arrival, this person crossing into our country might pose a risk to others because he's unvaccinated uh, or to himself because he may be hospitalized at public expense. Uh, and, and so uh, th that's a case of naivete. I mean, like, does he not realize he has a license plate on his car? And that this it, gives the government the same ability to identify him and know his details? How much of that naivete is the responsibility of really bad government messaging? Because I can remember one thing at the beginning, um, our health, our federal health, federal health minister said, that sometimes because they people were asking her to close the borders this is like february 2020 and she said sometimes um pandemics can get worse if you close the border and then never visited revisited that comment again and then two weeks later closed the border except for essential traffic and everything and and i'm just and there's like countless examples of the government's messaging just being really bad contradictory uh too ambiguous and I feel like they kind of created the right uh, petri dish for some of this ignorance to sort of grow and permeate. Yes, yeah, and I, I, I think there was a great deal of, uh, of what you might call incompetence. But the fact of the matter is that we did not know at the beginning what we know now. We did not know that cloth masks were no good. So now people are horrified. You see, the government was wrong. The government is, is foolish. Uh, we should condemn them because they've given us uh, uh, conflicting advice. And, then, and they said that the vaccines would stop the virus. Well, it turns out that you can still infect somebody even if you're vaccinated. Well, there's a failure to appreciate the obvious. Neither borders nor vaccines completely stop everything. Mm -hmm. They merely reduce it, which is the point. We want to reduce it. 
But when Fa the Fauci emails were leaked, and he said in one of those emails that cloth, I'm paraphrasing, but he said that cloth masks were useless. That was like five, six months ago. Our leaders didn't get on TV and say anything, even though we all heard it. And um, it's, it, it kind of makes me think of what Trudeau just said this morning. I'm not sure if you saw this or not. But he, he called the people in Ottawa, the, the convoy, he called them conspiracy theorists uh, wearing tinfoil hats. And even if like you and I might think that that's true to a certain degree, what does he think he's going to gain out of marginalizing that, the people that already feel like they've been marginalized by this leader? Is there any gain there at all for him? For to, to speak like that? Well, yes, because he's reflecting uh, uh, a, a, a broad consensus. I mean, political leaders do do that. Uh, they're not considered crazy if they say, well, you know, like uh, most people, he's going to appeal to, to, to the broad mass of people. He's not going to appeal to the fringe. That you know, the middle is where the votes are. All politicians do this. Um, it, 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 it's not amazing to me that, I mean, that he might say, uh, I didn't see his remarks, um, I, I did hear about them. Um, it's not amazing to me that he would say that um, these people are beyond the fringe and holding unacceptable views. Uh, well, yeah, most people agree that people who think that we should not encourage the use of masks and vaccines, and in some cases, mandate their use, makes sense to me that we should mandate their use. This makes yeah, I just, I just don't see a net gain. Like, I feel like he could have said, listen, the people that went to Ottawa felt they had something to protest about. But as I said from the beginning, vaccines are there to save lives. Yeah, yeah. But to call them tinfoil hat wearers, I just don't see the political net gain. I mean, it's. A, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. But, but it just James, we're talking about people who are holding up effigies, say, uh, 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 of Trudeau and saying, "Hang Trudeau." You're asking him whether he's going too far in denouncing them. I mean, the the, the stuff they're saying about Trudeau is insane. I I, I don't blame them. You know, people go around with with a news saying, hang Terry Malewski, uh, I'm not going to treat them with kid blood, kid blood. Yes, I'm but you would make it, crazy. but your response would, your response would sound better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, yeah. okay, let, let, let's go to something. I want you to tell me, um, who is this guy and when was this picture taken? Um, gosh, I do recognize that. It, it's on your Facebook. For some reason, I thought it was you. This is not you? My Facebook? I never use Facebook. I think I have a Facebook page, but... Oh, I think I someone put this... So that's not you then? Oh my God, that looks like James Franco. Hold on a second. <laughs> How about this one? That's, that's me, yes. That's 1982 in Toronto. 1982 That's a Toronto. CBC publicity shot. I don't know where you got that one. Uh, but yeah, that's a CBC uh, 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 publicity shot in 1982. I was the science and medicine correspondent at that time because of my vast knowledge of science and medicine, namely zero. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you do you miss being a journalist? You know, I know you're retired for what almost six years now. Uh, no, because I haven't stopped. I mean, I, 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 I've been writing books, books and articles because I've been asked to. Mm -hmm. uh, for a couple of years after I retired, I freelanced with the CBC. In fact, when I was, you, you asked me about the interview with Jagmeet Singh, for, for example, that was 2018, two years after yeah. I officially retired, but I was That's still right. working as uh, on a freelance basis for the CBC. So I didn't stop then, I haven't stopped now. Uh, I, 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 because I was assigned to the Air India story and a lot of people are interested in it, um, I was asked by an Indian publisher to write a book about it. Uh, and I've been asked to write articles and, uh, and to speak about it. So because people find it interesting. I mean, in India, it's a big story. And uh, so, so yeah, a Canadian publisher hasn't asked me to, to write about it. I think Canadians, uh, with good reason, sick of the whole thing. 
Um, and then the one last thing, I just want to show you something. I, I don't even know if you were friends with this person, but um, she was a friend of mine before she passed away. I work in a library a couple times a week in the community that I live in, up in uh, Killaloo and Barry's Bay. And I, I found this book and I couldn't believe how... <laughs> wow. Do you see? Yeah, that's an old... This is, I can't even remember what year it's from, like 1980 or something like that. Anyways, Christy Blatchford, um, I miss her voice. I know she infuriated a lot of people, but like... Man, I, I, miss look... her. I miss everything about her. It's yeah. two years now, isn't it, since she died? Yeah. About... I think she died in February. Yeah, it's almost exactly two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and she was a great loss to Canadian journalism, not only because of the, her salty uh, and original um, writing, but because she was so iconoclastic, because she would take on anything. Yeah. Uh, and uh, she just had a clarity of vision and common sense that I regret is most unusual. She was also damn funny. Oh, my God. She was my neighbor for a decade or so. So I used to see her every day jogging and stuff. And, and we knew each other uh, as neighbors for a long time. And... Um, it was amazing to see her in the morning jogging and like hanging out with her dog and we would have a coffee and stuff. And then in Obi. the afternoon, you remember that... Obi? You yeah, remember right. Obi? Yeah, <laughs> I certainly do. And then in the afternoon I'd go online and people would be calling her just the most horrible, terrible things. And I know that that's what happens. Um, but it, it was really like eye opening to see, uh, the public, a big swath of the public due to their ideology and due to polarization, get, um someone so wrong like she she wasn't like uh you know warm and fuzzy but but sometimes she would she would say things that made you feel like you were like on top of the world like she i i would pitch her stuff that i would be doing for other publications and she would stop me and she would look at me she's like you don't need my opinion it's it's fucking brilliant the way it is send it to me when you're done and it was just like oh my god christy blatchford said, said said that and she just i don't know she didn't like talking about herself and i love that about her and i i miss her so much you know yeah I miss she, her voice. She, she certainly was one of a kind i remember you you mentioned her dog i remember once we were covering the same trials we sat together for days on end and uh she was talking about her dog inevitably uh, and I about mine, and uh, she was saying how disobedient Obi was, uh, and uh, his, she described his latest crimes, and uh, I, I said, good boy, and she said, well, <laughs> she said, well, you wouldn't want an obedient dog, would you? To her, that was a terrible thing, to have a dog that would never cross the line and didn't commit crimes constantly, that would be boring. Well, yeah, because dogs not only look end up looking like their owners, but maybe they develop the same attitude as their owners too. Yeah, I think yeah. yeah. Obi's attitude was a, was pretty much bulldog, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Terry Molesky, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, really appreciate it, and um, yeah, we'll have you on again if you want to come back. I, I enjoy that. Thanks very much. I enjoyed this. Okay, thanks, thanks. very much, uh, Terry Molesky. Um, I could sit down and talk to him for about three, four hours, just, just about journalism itself, but I'm sure that would be probably the most boring thing in the world. But uh, we thank you uh, for tuning in. Uh, thank you, Terry, for joining us. And we will see you uh, tomorrow. Who's our guest tomorrow? Ernie Panicoli. He's hip-hop's most legendary photographer, and you guys aren't going to want to miss that. He, uh, if, you, if he hasn't shot you, you're probably not hip-hop. You're going to like it. Okay, thanks, everybody. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty 
from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.